Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. is the Church Law Podcast, where you can get practical solutions for today's leaders. I'm your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney. Welcome back to the Church Law Podcast. I'm your host, Erika Cole, known as the church attorney. The size, scope, and impact of legal challenges facing the church in America today our growing concern among pastors, church leaders, and I'm grateful that this podcast has been here to be a trusted resource. It's been an amazing season of the podcast, including a recent episode with Mike Cosper from the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. We've also tackled issues like how to handle fraud in the church, challenging HR issues, and what to do if your church wants to start taking cryptocurrency. And the most downloaded episode to date, cue the drum roll, it was the episode on making a church succession plan. I love that episode and all of the episodes we've provided to you and you've indicated that you've been enjoying it as well. So we'll link in the show notes all the episodes that I mentioned. And thanks to you, this podcast has been hugely successful with thousands of downloads from the United States, Canada, India, New Zealand, South Africa, the UK, UAE, Australia, Japan, Spain, etc. Appreciate having all of you. Thanks to all of our listeners. And as I've mentioned before, I love hearing from you. You have shared how much you've enjoyed the podcast and sent in your questions. So today's podcast is a listener Q&A. That's right. We're taking your questions. And with me today is a familiar voice, Matt Branagh, who is the content editor for Church Law and Tax. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Erika. It's great to be here. Glad to have you. So we've got a number of questions. um, And so I'd say, let's dive in. Sounds good. (laughs) All right. So I'll just read the questions and then um, share some thoughts and Feel free to to jump in, Matt, wherever you'd like to add some additional considerations. We've got some good ones. Excellent. All right. So question number one, ask how to get help and advice on financial rules. Does the church need a CPA, a lawyer, or both? This is a great question. So when you talk about financial rules, let me just first of all, expand on where these rules come from. (laughs) The first consideration, of course, is when we talk about legal issues that impact the church's finances, churches are presumed to be tax exempt. They are the only nonprofit entity that's presumed to be exempt without having to apply for recognition of exemption. 
There are plenty of good reasons why many churches choose to do so. But the first set of rules we consider is tax rules directly from the Internal Revenue Service. And those rules apply as a general matter to churches just as they would to all 501c3 entities. So we'd look to those rules. We'd also look to rules on the state side. So every state has laws and regulations that apply to how nonprofits need to operate, um, generally including churches. So we would call those statutory laws or rules. Um, Also, there are rules that are specific to internal controls, I guess I would say, that are much more of what a CPA would handle. Um, And so I would say from my perspective, there are benefits in having both legal counsel to address the legal side of how churches are required to operate, including financial considerations, as well as CPAs who are much more hands-on, number crunching, if I can say that, um, really looking at things from, from that perspective. So I think it's good to have both professionals at your disposal as a functioning church. Anything you want to add to that, Matt? No, I think I think you're hitting on some really great points. And, and you know, as far as uh, CPAs are concerned, I think that one area in particular where it makes a lot of sense for churches is when they're wanting to do an audit or they need some kind of um, outside consultation just to look at the financial functions of the church and just wanting to make sure that they've got good safeguards, good internal controls, good practices in place. So that would certainly make sense to bring bring an outside CPA in. And uh, we've talked about that in our recent fraud survey, the episode that you did here a little bit earlier on uh, in the season. And so uh, we'll again point to that in the show notes, but uh, that's where it makes sense for a CPA. And then I was looking through our site. You know, we have a article, a couple of articles by Rich Hammer. Uh, One is an article I did uh, as an interview with Sally Wagonmaker, an attorney that's in Chicago and a part of our advisory board. And, you know, there's some specific times and places where it makes sense to hire legal counsel. Um, Rich certainly, you know, indicates when your board member says, hey, I know so-and-so, they're an attorney, we can go talk to them, to be a little more cautious than just engaging that person. They may not know church law very well. They may not be familiar or well-versed in the areas of law that deal with churches. So um, just because they're an attorney doesn't mean they're necessarily qualified. And, uh, you know, and to that end, Sally makes the point, you know, there's some trusted places where you can go and find attorneys who are Christians and may be familiar with church law. Of course, our friends at Christian Legal Society being one could really resource for, for doing that. So, of course, anytime you've got a crisis issue that services, um, someone's alleging sexual harassment, there's an abuse allegation, um, you're dealing with, you know, questions of attorney client or uh, clergy and penance and privilege, criminal conduct is being suspected in some form or fashion. That's where obviously you've got to probably bring somebody in that's an attorney to, to help guide you. That's a good, that's good feedback. Thanks, Matt. So thank you so much for that listener question. Uh, the next question we have is, church discipline practices are normally guided by scripture, but should a discipline policy be outlined in the bylaws? Really good question. I feel like we've touched on bylaws in various components throughout the season. That's really good because your bylaws, as we've recently discussed, the word bylaws comes from the term to pilot, right? It's all about stewarding and piloting the operations of the church. And your discipline practices um, certainly will come from scripture, but ultimately 
I think it's important from a legal standpoint for them to be interpreted in a way that your bylaws would outline. So when we talk about church discipline, I presume that means things like how your faith is interpreted through your membership and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And of course, many churches will have a statement of faith, but I'm presuming that church discipline practices could mean things like if a person acts outside of the membership requirements, how the church has a right to respond. And because as a lawyer, you know, we're always thinking about the what ifs. So if a point of discipline needed to be followed through on and the member felt like that was inappropriate or untoward somehow, you certainly want to make sure that you have good documentation and good support and your bylaws is generally where that would that would be housed. Also, I mean, I have to say, if, for example, the courts would have to interpret the bylaws, you want to make sure that you have congruent information within your bylaws with how your church operates. So those would be my initial thoughts there. Anything you'd want to add, Matt? Rika, I think you've hit the key points. And, and it really comes down to how a church defines membership and then how those members you know, submit to the authority of the church for things like discipline. And I think you, you've nailed that exactly right as far as those things being stated explicitly and then understood by those who are a part of the church. Yeah. And again, I would point this listener to um, the recent episode that we did, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, we specifically dealt with issues surrounding church bylaws. We also have an episode about when church meetings go off the rails, which discusses a little bit about bylaws and how those meetings and dealing with membership issues can be addressed. So um, we'll link those resources for you again in the show notes. Thanks for that question. Next question we have here is, I have a question I would love answered if possible. It is possible and here we are. There is a worship lead that our church would like to use on a periodic basis every few Sundays. He is on an R1 visa sponsored by a different church. Our understanding is that he can only work for the church sponsoring his visa. My question is, instead of paying him directly, can we legally pay his church for worship services and then they arrange with him separately about compensation for the hours? Essentially, we would be paying a fee to the church for worship services and they would be paying him, that is the worker, extra to provide those services. We have tried to get a clear answer, but struggled. Thanks. Matt, I'm going to toss this over to you. All right. Well, as you know, Erika, a lot of times we come across questions where we're, we're not very well versed. And so we have to call on others who have some expertise. And that's what I've done here. Uh, immigration law is just not something I'm very well versed in. And fortunately, on our advisory board, we have an attorney named Lena Hughes, who is uh, based out in California and does a lot of work on, on immigration and, and on religious worker visas or R1 visas, um, as is referenced here. So I'll share very quickly a little bit of what she had to say. I also consulted with uh, Frank and Elaine Somerville, also on our advisory board. They're very experienced in compensation and unrelated business income tax. They had some thoughts too. I'll try to very quickly touch on those and not go too far into the weeds. But um, as far as Lena uh, and her response, um, she says, you know, with regard to the immigration law regulations, 
Um, the R1 worship leader has only one employer, and therefore that leader can only receive religious compensation by the R1 petitioner, in this case, the church that sponsored this visa. So there can be no expectation of compensation from the non-petitioner church, which would be, in this case, this listener's church, it sounds like. Um, and there cannot be any employee-employer relationship between them unless they want to sponsor the worship leader for an Arwen visa as well. So he could volunteer to do this work for the non-petitioning church uh, on occasion, but he shouldn't be listed as the worship leader and he shouldn't be viewed as the regular worship leader in that instance. If he does volunteer, he still has to fulfill the work he's doing for the sponsoring church. So he can't, can't suddenly start doing this on a volunteer basis and shirk the responsibilities that brought him here through that visa. And there's probably also some wisdom in making sure on that original visa, uh, there's typically a place to list where a second site would be possible for this person to work, that this church where he would potentially do this work would also be listed on there. Okay, so that's a mouthful, and that's on the immigration side. And probably I'm summarizing a little bit more generally than even Lena would be comfortable with, but that gives you at least some sense here that everything's got to flow through that R1 petitioning church, the, the one that's sponsored and supported the person under this visa. As for the compensation side of things, again, I think Lena was sort of suggesting, hey, steer, steer clear of this. Um, Elaine and Frank, it was also a concern. And so in the end, what I think Elaine is saying is that compensation has got to come through the sponsoring church. They need to handle that directly with the, the person that's here on the visa. And it, it really should not flow at all through this second church and how the two churches want to work together as far as that's concerned is between them. But when it comes to actual compensation with the sponsoring church and the uh, worker that's here on this visa, it just needs to be between them and only them. So that was a long answer, but hopefully it gives a little bit of insight. And, uh, and again, we'll, we'll post some information here on our site uh, related to immigration law and, um, and compensation. And that might be helpful in the show notes as far as follow-up for those that are listening. Thank you so much, Matt. And I'm so appreciative for the breadth of resources that, um, that we have and grateful for Lena as well as Elaine and Frank. Frank and Elaine. <laughs> so grateful for, for them as um, trusted resources and that really helpful feedback. I won't add anything else there because I think you've covered it very well. And um, for time, we're going to move on to the next question, which is a little lengthy. So I'll try to summarize in parts. This says, I serve on the finance team at my church and need some direction. The question is whether this plan is possible where a small group um, will organize their own childcare for members meetings in designated childcare host homes. Each designated childcare host will be eligible for childcare reimbursement of up to $100 per members meeting. And they're saying that the church will have no responsibility for screening, but the church will reimburse a designated member directly. And that member will be responsible for paying the sitter directly. So the question here is, um, can you provide some direction on how and where to get some help on this issue? Boy, this is, this is something. <laughs> and I will say, first of all, as you know, a wife and mom, I completely appreciate what it means to be involved in church and to attend meetings 
and to also have to make plans for childcare, right? So I love the fact that the church is giving this some consideration. So first, I want to point you to the episode right before this one, which again is with Matt. So um, back-to-back episodes here, Matt. And we're talking about considerations around child care and child protection specifically. So child protection policies. And I hope that your church has a child protection policy because that would be the first place I'd encourage you to take a look and just make sure that the policy is being reviewed and followed addressing issues of how we care for young people. The second thing I wanted to raise is this issue. Uh, I noticed how the it seems that one of the goals here, in addition to the admirable one of wanting to provide childcare during meetings, is wanting to avoid um, liability for the church. And I think this issue is going to be a challenge to avoid liability when the whole purpose, as I understand it, of having childcare in the first place is because of member meetings for the church, right? It's not like my husband and I decide we're going out for date night. Are you listening, husband? I'd like to go out for date night. <laughs> um, so we're going out for date night and we get a sitter, right? That's completely on us. But this sounds like this is a system, a process that's specifically for members meetings for the church. So I do think that um, this issue of what we call vicarious liability would be difficult to avoid. I think ultimately the church is going to have a challenge in sidestepping all liability. But I think there may be something here to still take away. I don't know if, you know, much of life is, you know, when we drive every day, we're taking on some level of potential for liability, right? But we still drive. So I think that there are some considerations of ways that we can do this effectively, maybe in tweaking this approach a little bit. So I'll toss out my ideas and Matt, feel free to share any further thoughts that you have. So number one, maybe we could centralize things a bit more. So for example, if all the parents drop off their kids to a central location, maybe that is the church and the church uses its presumably regular protocols, right? Uh, of screening um, volunteers, et cetera. And, and those individuals are available for a set number of times for these member meetings. And then the adults go back and they have their meeting and then they pick up the kids. Like that may be a consideration. I would also consider if in fact we had these various small group meetings within individual homes, um, maybe it would be a rotation of parents, you know, who would say, okay, I'll watch the kids on this designated day. But I think those individuals should still be screened. I think it's just appropriate when you're talking about young people. I don't know that there's much more, you know, importance than making sure that they remain safe. So I think whoever is watching the kids should go through your church's regular screening process. And maybe we could simplify this process a little bit by using the regular volunteers who have also been screened um, or perhaps having a pool of individuals that we make use of. Last thing I want to mention is insurance. I'm not sure how what you've proposed would fly with your insurance carrier. So the whole idea that the church would have these kinds of events and then presume that 
it has no responsibility, I would check with your insurance carrier because I, I'd be surprised if, if they would see it the same way. I think you've, you've hit all of the key points. I think the common thread is that policy that you have in place. That's the common thread here. You want to have screening, selection, and supervision processes. And we've got resources. We'll provide the show notes that help with that. But you've got to apply those for any kind of church-sponsored activities or events. And that includes small groups in, in private homes. So you need to follow those things. Um, there's you know, ways that you can do that, I think, effectively, as you've already articulated here, Erika. Um, and so uh, whether it ends up in the, in the homes where the children are supervised or it's at the church with um, volunteers that supervise and then others go out from there to have their small group time, Either way, that common thread is the policy and then, and then following that policy. The other thing I'll mention here is there's that compensation component that's raised in the question. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail there. I'm, I'm not well-versed in going into the tax-related considerations with all of that. Just know that that does probably trigger something, even if it's like a pass-through from somebody to somebody that doesn't necessarily resolve that. So you've got that issue. And then you've got the issue of, well, then are these people, if they're getting compensated, are they considered employees of the church? Or, you know, it raises all of those questions. I think it's just better to go with the volunteer approach if you can. You know, that's not always easy or realistic, but it is probably in the end preferable. Thanks so much, Matt. All right, we've got a few more questions we're going to try to get through quickly. Um, next one says, Erika, I've enjoyed and learned a lot from your podcast. Glad to hear it. I'm about to commission as an elder at my small non-denominational church, and your episodes have given me plenty to reflect on. One thing I've wondered as I prepare for this responsibility is how liable am I as an elder? The church is a 501c3, and the only thing I've signed is a statement of faith. But if someone brings a suit against the church, would I be personally liable in any way? I've heard stories about church members being personally liable when the church was sued because they weren't organized properly. Thanks for any help you can provide. All right. Well, thanks for being a listener and congratulations on being commissioned as an elder. That's awesome. And um, prayers to you for for ongoing um, blessings as you serve. So I'm not sure how your church is formed, um, if whether an elder is more on the ecclesiastical side or if it's more on like the board of elders and therefore you are a fiduciary of the church in some particular way. So I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I will just key in on this question of the fact that you asked whether you'd be personally liable in any way. So we all know that we live in a very litigious society, unfortunately. And generally speaking, if you are serving in a capacity as a volunteer for the church, you are acting on the church's behalf, right? And you, as so long as you are operating within the context of properly, right, following the rules, <laughs> not not coloring outside the lines, and that is, you know, specifically following the policies, following the bylaws, etc. Then, generally speaking, that is really your primary. That that's really key. Um, as long as you're doing that. Um, at least that puts you under the umbrella of protection for um, certain forms of liability. And that doesn't mean that someone wouldn't sue you in your individual capacity. I'm sad to say that in you know over 20 years of practice, over 23 years of practice, I have seen an increasing 
practice of when there's a suit against the church, also suing certain individuals in leadership. And um, unfortunately, I don't know that there's a way to avoid that, except to know that you have done um, your best to operate within the confines of the church's requirements. So having said that, you know, as a tax exempt organization, there is both on the federal side and most states also have a level of protection for volunteers in nonprofit organizations. So I think that you could certainly lean into that. Also want to mention, review your bylaws to make sure that there is a clear indication that the church will indemnify, that's the language you want to look for, indemnify its elder board in case there is any sort of lawsuit against the church. And that basically means that they would provide a level of coverage for you if the worst case did in fact happen. Anything you want to add there, Matt? Rika, I think you've hit a lot of key points. I think um, a couple of other thoughts quickly here. One is um, it, it really does matter that your church is incorporated. I know that we get that question quite often. You know, do we have to incorporate? Some people have this perception that if they incorporate, they suddenly find themselves under the under the thumb of the of the government, and so maybe we should be unincorporated. Well, incorporation actually helps eliminate to some extent liability, personal liability from people within that entity. So that's one of the protections that incorporation provides. The other couple of quick thoughts here. One is some of those uh, statutes, state statutes that provide some immunity for volunteers or um, officers and directors of nonprofit organizations, it's dependent on them being uncompensated. And that's an important uh, thing for people to keep in mind, especially if your pastor is also a board member. So if your pastor is compensated, you need to make sure very clearly that you state that their compensation has nothing to do with their role as a board member, uh, just to avoid uh, forfeiting that protection that they may get from that state state statute. The other uh, last thing I'll just mention is, in the end, you could still be personally liable as a board member if you are acting criminally or if you do conduct that's considered willful and wanton or grossly negligent. Those are big legal words we won't go into here, but just keep in mind, those are still in play. We'll have some information in the show notes about what those things all mean. But in the end, you just have to be faithful in carrying out your fiduciary duties to the church within your role and not carry on anything that's criminal or grossly negligent. Thanks for that additional insight. I think that's very helpful. And thank you, listener, for that question. Listen, we're going to try to get through two more questions um, and we'll have to wrap up here. Um, Hi, Rika. We seem to have differing opinions at our church about using platforms like Venmo for giving. Some, including this listener, feel strongly that younger families don't even have checkbooks and do all their transactions electronically. Others are concerned about tracking giving with these types of platforms. They also feel like text to give is adequate. The irony of this conversation is the person who's hesitant is a youthful 30-something, but very much an accountant. Do you have any articles that relate to this topic or any insights to share? What are your reservations, if any, with giving on platforms like Venmo? Really great question. Really great, great question. And I have to say, in this hybrid world <laughs> that we are living in and, and likely to live in for years to come, this has become a bigger issue and a bigger question. And so one, 
I commend you and your church on raising the question because I have seen issues where people have used personal um, PayPal accounts or personal Venmo accounts, et cetera, for giving to the church. And that is definitely not something we want to do. Um, so it is, I'm, I'm glad to see that you're doing your due diligence. I do have hesitation around using platforms that aren't meant to be giving platforms, right? They're meant to be a way to pay for services or an exchange paying for goods received, et cetera, but not donations per se. So I do think it's necessary to do some additional due diligence, maybe to consider platforms that are more focused on donations. And I will say, for example, I've seen Givelify be utilized very effectively for this purpose. Um, there are certainly other apps as well. So that's what I would say in my my response there. Anything you'd, you'd want to add, Matt? I think you're you're hitting it right on the nose there, Eureka, as far as wanting to make sure you're using um, some kind of platform that's already designed for giving and contributions. There are some apps out there that integrate very nicely with church management software that can be really helpful for a church. Um, it does require just doing some homework and some legwork. I would also say, make sure you get references from other churches that use these platforms. It's better to just get you know firsthand experiences with these different tools to know how they work, what's their strengths, what's their weaknesses, so that your church can prepare accordingly. I, I also would just mention that there's still some internal controls and other mechanisms that you want to institute whenever using these. Uh, obviously, you want, if you're going to set up any kind of account that it's in the church's name and that you've got you know, very clear parameters of who has access and who can do what, and that there's multiple people involved. So it's not just one person that has control. Excellent point, Matt. And I'm going to jump right into this last question, which says, the senior pastor has family working in the church. There was tension around the elders setting the family member's salary. The senior pastor asked the compensation committee to have an independent third party consider and set family members' pay. The independent third party set the family pay using a different pay scale and a different compensation philosophy. The independent third party set a salary 30% higher than what the HR director would have recommended for a non-family member because the difference in pay scale and the difference in compensation philosophy. So what was intended to prevent quote unquote inequities actually created them. How does the compensation committee set family salaries in a way that is comparable to how all other staff are compensated? Thank you for considering this question. Boy, this is interesting. So I'm going to jump in and then Matt, if anything you want to add, let me know. The first thing is I do notice this issue of the pastor having family members also employed by the church. And I don't know if these family members are also on the governing board, but I just want to highlight what the Internal Revenue Service calls a disinterested board. And that is generally that a majority of the people on the governing board should not be related. And when I say related, the IRS says not related by blood or by marriage. And that a majority of the people on the board should not be compensated by the church. So I would first want to make sure that we are meeting that important disinterested board standard. 
secondarily, I love the fact that this church had a compensation committee and that the church engaged an independent third party to review the compensation and to set the compensation. I thought that was a great move, definitely commendable, and especially important when you're addressing issues where there could be the perception of impropriety because they're family members. Um, So kudos there. I think the big consideration is that, you know, this is not a scenario where two plus two equals four. Like it's, there are various considerations around compensation. And just like people, different lawyers make different salaries, right? You know, there's not a one size fits all. So they're going to be considering things like geographic location, how long the person has been in the role, what are the duties of the role, how does it compare to other persons serving in a similar role. So um, I think that as so long as the process was done properly, I think we have to allow the outcome to be what it is. So that's my, my answer as we're running out of time here. I think you've hit all the key points, Erika. I think this church has done a great job doing the outside homework that we think is really important when it comes to compensation. There's a um, also just this component of recognizing that when it comes to using outside sources, whether consultants or salary surveys, which we have, we have churchsalary.com, which um, helps provide these kinds of reports. When you use those things, you just want to make sure you're using those things evenly across the board. So in this, in this case with this church, great that they did it with these specific individuals. In my mind now, it makes total sense that they would now apply that across the board. They need to do the same thing with all other compensated positions. If only, again, to, as you've noted from the, from the listener's question, not look like they're giving favoritism to one set of uh, uh, employees versus another. They can apply it across the board and determine how should they be compensated across the board and I think they're in great shape and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So uh, again, commendable activities by this church. I think they're on the right track. Now they just have to take the next step forward in, in applying it across the board. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Matt, for being with me for this very first listener q and I'm excited that you all were here. Continue to listen. We love having you. And listen, as you're looking to dive more into these kinds of issues and ensuring that your church is operating in compliance, I urge you to sign up for my free webinar, What Does It Mean for a Church to Be in Compliance? You can sign up at erikacole.com. This podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax and is a part of the Christianity Today podcast network. Subscribe to the Church Law Podcast to get each new episode and join us on this journey. Thanks for listening to the Church Law Podcast. We invite listeners like you to submit questions and comments. Send your email with the subject line podcast question to contact at takethenextcall.com. This podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax, part of Christianity Today's podcast network. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. 
It is provided with the understanding that the host and the publisher are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional person should be sought. Due to the nature of the U.S. legal system, laws and regulations constantly change. Listeners are encouraged to consult with legal counsel to verify the information provided here remains current. Visit churchlawandtax.com for more insights.